Oh, it's quickly. Ma- mind if I open this oh, rice beer? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bannon? Yeah. Cut two. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant? Bar. Club. Day. Night. What's going on, all? This is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. I'm your host, Amonis Rose. Now, guys, a big thing in Hollywood is IP, intellectual property. If a creative salesperson brings someone with buying power, a hit book, a hit magazine article, etc., especially if this said property already has an audience, well, I'm not saying the sale is easy by any means, but you might have a leg up. Which brings me to our guest and our fictional brewery. J. Ryan Straddle is a novelist that I discovered in 2019. He wrote the book Kitchens of the Great Midwest and then came out with his latest book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, last summer. Uh, Personally, Kitchens of the Great Midwest has everything a foodie would love. But there's something even more special to me about the Artemis Brewery that Jay Ryan created in Lager Queen. So what am I saying? What's the point? Us at Restaurant Fiction can only hope that Lager Queens will one day make it to the big screen. So the world can see and learn about the three women running Artemis Brewery. But until then, we're going to chat in a two-part interview with the author, Jay Ryan Straddle, about how much research and depth goes into building the world, the characters, and most of all, what beer says about a person. Well, guys, thank you for joining us. We are talking to none other than Jay Ryan Straddle. Now, why is Jay Ryan here? Well, he knows a thing or two, not just about great kitchens of the Midwest, but he knows a thing or two about lager, not just any kind of lager. Well, you know, IPAs, cultures from Minnesota. You know, he knows a thing or two about the queens of Minnesota, the lager queens. Is there really royalty in Minnesota? Well, uh... Depends who you ask. But anyway, without further ado, we're going to get right into the, the questions. First, a couple of icebreakers. What is the best and worst beer you've ever had? Wow. Uh, it's tough to nail down a best. That's really tough. My favorite beer in Los Angeles right now is probably Three Weavers. I'm biased, though, because they were such a huge help to me in creating Lager Queen of Minnesota. They gave me access to their facilities, answered a lot of questions, helped with a lot of my research. So the women at Three Weavers were hugely instrumental. So I'm biased, but I really also enjoy their beer. I had a friend come down who's a real beer connoisseur, and of all the maybe 15 or 20 different beers he tried in his two days in Los Angeles. He also mentioned Three Weavers was his favorite. And so he's a more informed (laughs) beer fan than I am, has a much more sophisticated palate for these things. And he agreed. It's not just my bias. So I recommend them. And they're pretty widely available now. I see them in Trader Joe's and Gelson's. Locally in Minnesota, I'm a fan of Castle Danger. Uh, You won't be able to get it much outside of Minnesota. But if you find yourself in my home state, I recommend looking up Castle Danger Brewery. In terms of least favorite, yeah. uh, boy. You know, there, I haven't had a lot of bad beer in my life. I'll certainly 
blots. No blots for you. That's what that won't be the that won't be the worst blots. Lots and blots. <laughs> blots special light. Well, I suppose the equivalent. I mean, when it's possible to avoid Miller light, Bud Light, Coors Light, that kind of thing, I certainly do. I mean, if it's 95 degrees and there's nothing else, I've been known to have one, but it takes a certain amount of conditions. I don't know. I, I tend to avoid beers that are a little too busy, beers that have been dragged through a garden, beers that have a few too many ingredients that I'm not quite sure what the uh, essence of what I'm supposed to be trying is, or things that are overly hopped. I'm really kind of glad the hop wars are done. There was a battle between these brewers in the UK and brewers in Germany for a while to create the most alcoholic beer in the world. And that wasn't necessarily pleasant to drink. <laughs> so, so things like that. Things that either on one extremity of effort or invention for its own sake or on the other side, just a totally <laughs> anonymous swill. <laughs> Those are only two things I would consider to be failures or at least insufficient. First of all, guys, Three Reavers, it's this awesome, uh, yes, uh, mom, pop brewery, kind of next to LAX. So what I recommend if your flight is delayed or if you get there too early or whatever, yeah, just go to Three uh, Weavers and have yourself a good time. Absolutely. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. Yeah, if you find yourself getting close to LAX, then all of a sudden you get the push notification that your flight's been delayed three hours. Oh, yeah, going down three weavers. And stuff. That's actually how I discovered it, was, was because I had a delay and I wanted a good bar to go to. What is it about drinking and beer that mesh so well with Minnesota? It's a beer state, historically. It was settled by a lot of Germans and some Czechs. I come from a Czech family myself. I'm half Czech, my dad's family. Uh, the Stratos are all Czechs. So there's that heritage ingrained in the state's history. At one point, the state had hundreds and hundreds of breweries in the 1880s, 1870s, and now it has about 200. So it's starting to return back to that era. But what's interesting about the current era of Minnesota brewing is that it doesn't really seem like any brewers in Minnesota want to get too famous. I don't see the next Dogfish Head or the next Russian River or the next Ballast Point coming out of Minnesota. They don't want to get that big. They all want to be about the size they are now or maybe just slightly bigger. You know, Minnesota's not a great wine state. It's a little too flat, a little too cold. I mean, it does have cold nights quite often, which is good for wine, but the days aren't quite warm enough, and it's fairly humid. That said, there's some okay dessert wines that come out of Minnesota, but it's it's not a wine state. It's a beer state. And I think it enjoys that reputation. Plus, uh, the summers, as brief as they can be, do get pretty hot and humid, and that invites itself to beer more than, I'd say, just about any other alcoholic beverage when it came to you know the food and beverage aspect of research you know what was a better project to work on the uh, kitchens of the great midwest or lager queens of minnesota and this is yes specifically to the gastronomic and beverage side not the character side kitchens of the great midwest enabled me to research a lot of different things including some topics that didn't make the book like heirloom tomatoes yeah, <laughs> I still wrote the chapter. It got published online as a short story, but it didn't make the book. Well, Lager Queen was necessarily a lot more focused. It was beer and pie and mostly beer. I wrote Lager Queen in part because I didn't know a whole lot about beer. I knew I liked it, but I couldn't have really told you the difference between an ale and a lager at that point. And so I created three characters that didn't know anything about beer and started all their stories at a point where they knew nothing about beer and had them learn. And so they taught me. That was fun. 
Let's book the Lager Queen Minnesota guys. So there are three female leads, I should say. Or, you know, I guess for argument's sake, there could be one lead and two supporting. I personally think there's three protagonists. So you have these three women, guys. Helen drinks blots. Diana drinks IPA. Edith drinks a beer that she could only drink, which is Grandma Edith's rhubarb pie in a bottle ale. The first beer she likes is the beer that she comes up with. <laughs> what does the beer say about the women who drink them? Each beer is yeah, necessarily an extension of their personality and their values, I think. Helen creates a beer because she and her husband, Orville, set out to make a beer that to them would be the next course, which at the time they start their brewery in the 1960s is the dominant brewer of note in terms of desirability, particularly the upper Midwest. I mean, my parents and people of my parents' generation told me that. They said, oh, wow, if you brought a six-pack of Coors to a party in 1968, ah, boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cat's meow. Exactly. Those six cans are going to be gone in 20 seconds. Yeah. Realizing that that was the standard for desirability at that time, it made sense to have Helen be a lager brewer, to have her set out to make these you know, clear pilsners, you know, and light beer eventually by the mid-70s, plot special light that we mentioned earlier. And so she learns to love them if she doesn't love them already because they're her livelihood. Whereas Edith is in the position of creating a beer in a vacuum where she's just helping out a relative at their brewery and gets the opportunity to make a beer of her own. And she just thinks, well, what would I drink? I don't like beer. So what would a beer I like be? In a much more dilated world of beer tastes, where something like rhubarb pie in a bottle ale would be something people would buy. In fact, equivalents thereof exist. I had a strawberry rhubarb ale at New Glarus Brewery in Wisconsin this summer that I imagined would taste a lot like Edith's beer. And they were limiting purchases to four bottles per customer because of the demand for this. Oh my gosh. And this is in also the Midwest. Yes, in Wisconsin. And so the success of Edith's beer didn't seem unusual to me at its time. I mean, that, that was set in 2018. So certainly in 1975, when, e- when Helen launches Blot Special Light, that's going to be a hit in that time. The dawn of Miller Light and the dawn of light beer. Rhubarb pie in a bottle would not have been a success, <laughs> most likely. <laughs> it might have been a passing novelty that people would try once and never again. Whereas nowadays, I think um, a beer like Edith's would have a little more success. Whereas Diana gets into brewing just because it's a job. She doesn't really develop a, a taste or a love for beer until she devotes herself to the job more fully. And her taste for IPAs comes about through a practice, through the fact that it's the first beer she's assigned to make because it's the hardest to screw up. The main character in J. Ryan's novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, is Eva Torvald. What kind of beer would Eva drink? Probably something local. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I went to a brewery called Mad Fritz. In um, Napa, California, their brewer is the most intense brewer in regards to sourcing ingredients that I've ever met. His beer labels, because he's one of the more knowledgeable brewers I've met in terms of his opinions about what makes the kind of beer he's interested in brewing. In other words, like I feels like you know he's got a wine background. And he seems to approach beer the way someone with a wine, wine background might. He's got a tremendously interesting approach to it in terms of 
not really looking for profit per se. He mentions where every ingredient in this beer is from, specifically, including the water. He includes the water on his label, guys. Mad Fritz, the porcupine, and the snakes. Grudale, the water's from St. Helena. The <laughs> barley source is from Siskiyou City, California. The variety is Copland Second Row. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah, it's that wow. kind of... This is like MIT chemist right. level. Right, and I think Eva would be into this. I think Eva would look at this and go, okay... Here's someone who's putting a lot of thought into what they're doing, and they're also making the beer they want. I mean, he's not doing this for an audience. He's doing this because he cares enough to do this. He's putting in this effort. But he also does want people to know he's made this effort. He's putting it on every label of every beer. I think Eva would be interested in that. I think she would want to engage this brewer. But that said, I'm not sure if a brewer would need to go to this extent to impress Eva. I think merely someone making a local beer who's doing it responsibly, conscientiously, and also deliciously would be enough for her. You know, in other words, what might be the best choice for Eva might be something sold out of the back of a truck in a parking lot. What's your process in bringing Edith, Helen, and Diana to life? Discovering enough about them to figure out what their problems are and making them reckon with those problems, putting them on a course where they're going to be challenged so that they learn about themselves and they learn what they're capable of. Where does your passion for food and beer come from? I like to say quite often that it comes from the lack of diversity of food I had growing up. Because <laughs> I'd read about food in books and magazines, and I'd realize that there was a whole universe of food out there I wasn't exposed to. And it wasn't that my parents were discouraging about my exposure to this. They just weren't interested in it themselves. Fantastic. Yeah, the first authentic Mexican food I ever had was actually in Minnesota. It was in St. Paul. A truck parked in the parking lot of the Busy Bee Cafe in St. Paul. It was by Mexicans for Mexicans mostly. But it was the first time I had lengua and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, first time I even heard of it. Because believe me, the Mexican restaurants, or the restaurants called Mexican restaurants, Minnesota at the time, this is the early 90s, where <laughs> they, they, they didn't reflect the culture's food the way I see it expressed in California. <laughs> I'm being as kind as possible. I don't know if compromise is too mean. The people making Mexican cuisine, even if they were of Mexican descent or heritage, were um, perhaps necessarily for their own solvency, adjusting it for the palates of Minnesotans, which is to say it was a good deal blander. <laughs> <laughs> and so having these tacos really opened my eyes to what a taco actually was. This wasn't this just hard shell concoction full of iceberg lettuce and shredded cheddar cheese, sour cream, with like some meat that happened to have taco seasoning sprinkled in it. Like, no, this was a, a small, maybe no no larger than the diameter of my hand. Like, well, small, yeah, probably a good deal smaller than that now that I think about it, with just lengua and <laughs> maybe a few onions and this tortilla, this freshly made tortilla, and that was it. And it blew my mind. I was like, well, this is what it's actually supposed to be. This isn't anything like what I've been raised with. So um, I don't know how it went off on this tangent, but... One of the things I enjoyed so much about coming to California was coming to a state not, that not only enjoys the agility of its agriculture, and certainly this is a really incredible state for that, and uh, the culinary opportunities that provides. Jay Ryan, thank you. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks from now for part two. That's right. So what are you going to do in the in-between time between now and two weeks from now? Go out and buy Jay Ryan's books. They are 
Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and the Lager Queen of Minnesota. Go to Amazon, Costco, Walmart, wherever you got to do to find them and buy them or rent them from your local library. I think uh, Restaurant Fiction just coined itself its first book club. So now I guess we are also not just a podcast, but a book club. Oprah not only has a book club, Reese Witherspoon not only has a book club, but Restaurant Fiction, Restaurant Fiction has one too. So check them out. We highly, highly recommend them. For more Restaurant Fiction, you can download all of our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as go to restaurantfiction.com. I'm your host, Monis Rose, and as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to exterior, interior, restaurant.